brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome to the show, everybody. Okay, today we're talking about uh, hypochondriasm and neuroticism. And it is important, uh, these two disorders, you know, hypochondria is basically a neurotic disorder, but I'm breaking it out because it is so pervasive in uh, our society. I mean, in America alone, one out of 20 Americans who visit, visit doctors suffer from hypochondria. Uh, they, they, through all figures are frustratingly inconclusive. One can be a lifelong hypochondriac and never know it. Just as one could be convict, uh, convinced one is a hypochondriac, in fact, be physically actually ill. You know, the, the deal is with hypochondriacs, uh, amazingly, they have to have great insurance because if a hypochondriac doesn't have great insurance and or their spouse or their family, let me tell you, it can cost millions because doctors will refer and refer and refer for testing and all kinds of stuff when they can't get a conclusive answer. These people are probably the most laboratory tested individuals in the world uh, and often finding that there's very little if nothing uh, that is wrong with them. And, in the, you know, the sad truth is they just are totally preoccupied. You know, it's like hypochondriasm is basically uh, like Bigfoot. You know, it, it it's out there. People believe it's out there, but they never find Bigfoot. And so, you know, they, they study, uh, but it, it's very elusive. It's very elusive. And some people who are hypochondriacs might classify themselves as merely physically ill you know, it's just very hard to quantify this. And part of the problem is, is that hypochondriacs exist on a very broad spectrum. The worst case, hypochondriacs can delve into the deepest depths of depression, which is lengthy, unwieldy, uh, self-diagnosis, uh, fear of the unknown. And so consequently, uh, people are uh, just go crazy as far as trying to find out what is wrong with them. And they go from doctor to doctor. They don't believe one. They don't believe another. They don't believe another until somebody finds something. And uh, once they get their hooks on something, all of a sudden they get off of it because they feel like they can treat it. And then they move on to something else later on. And generally speaking, hypochondriacs aren't merely hypochondriacs. Most struggle with anxiety and depression or both. And when someone is anxious about having an illness, the, the, the anxiety level goes up because they feel like, oh, my God, am I going to die? And so their stress level goes up. And, and that can lead to headaches, to stomach and digestive problems. And, and anxiety uh, definitely can cause pain. And if you're a hypochondriac, you react to that pain in a unique way. Now, let me describe uh, biologically what happens to a person when they're stressed out. Biologically, what happens is uh, people clench their teeth, they breathe through their nose, and you only breathe through one nostril at a time. And so what happens is they basically are cutting their brain off of oxygen. And so the brain calls to the blood and says, hey, I'm running the show. I need all the oxygen. And so basically it takes all the oxygen into the brain and the, and oxygen's what th- makes the sun explode. So if you think about it, you know, your organs are, are operating off of oxygen that's in the bloodstream. And so they need it to operate. So if you take blood out of the stomach, 
uh, you take blood out of out of the lungs, you take blood out of the heart, not blood, but oxygen out of these organs, they're going to stop pumping. And of course, you're going to feel pain. Of course, you're going to feel twinges. Of course, you're going to feel all kinds of things because your body's out of order because you're not giving it enough oxygen. You know, water has huge amount of oxygen, 83%. Air has about 23%. So if you're feeling somatic pains, drink some water. Drink some water and see how it goes because you might discover you're just lacking oxygen because you're so stressed out and worried. Now, you know, neurotic people overall, and that includes hypochondriacs, they live in the past and in the future. They, they're always forecasting negative outcomes. They're always very pragmatic, very worried about things. Uh, they base their, their thoughts on the past and past incidents, especially things that don't go well, and uh, they correlate those into the future. So they have a very uh, fear-based life, and a fear-based life is going to be one that is anxious. And, and no amount of reassurance, especially with when we'll stay on the hypochondriac, no amount of reassurance helps these people. The brain is so powerful that it really can convince itself that it's ill. And you know, you know something is wrong because you will believe what you're thinking, and what you're thinking is what you perceive to be feeling. So you can have five people tell you it's all in your mind, and that's that's good enough. But in fact, all il illnesses are psychosomatic. All illnesses involve both the mind and body, which suggests that one condition differs relatively based on what you're biologically doing, especially from your brain. You know, your brain is a muscle. If you don't use it well or if you fill it with worry and anxiety, you're going to have very primitive emotional thinking. Uh, you're not going to be human. You're not going to have that prefrontal cortex activity that you need to counterbalance anxiety, and that's called logic, and that's what makes us human. You know, uh, although hypochondria is, is formally regarded as a uh, mental disorder, it is slightly more uh, an expansive view. We all walk that side of the street a bit. None of us are, are disembodied, but we all have personalities and fears and hopes, and, and it's a matter of degree. Everybody has some hypochondriasm because they're in touch with their body and trying to see if they're okay. Some people have a much higher threshold of, yeah, I'm, I'm ill than other people. You know, um, the, the symptomology that, uh, that uh, involves hypochondriac may simply be the flavor that a person's ruminations take on, such as an illness is, is very common uh, content of the ruminations like in, in an obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety and depression. So, you know, they may feel sad or lethargic and they may feel they have some kind of deficiency, but in fact, they're just depressed. So they're laying on their back. Uh, not able to sleep. So here's how we define uh, a hypochondriac. You know, there, these are some of the symptoms that I'm going to describe that define a hypochondriac. You know, symptoms of illness, uh, anxiety disorder involved in preoccupation with the idea that you're seriously ill uh, based on normal body sensations such as a noisy stomach, minor symptoms such as a rash. Signs and symptoms may include, by the way, being preoccupied with having or getting a serious disease or health condition. These folks are often worrying that minor symptoms or body sensations mean you have a serious illness. Also, they're easily alarmed about their health status, and they find little to no reassurance from negative test results or a doctor's reassurance that they're healthy. 
Um, they still believe that, that the doctor's wrong, no matter how concrete the answers are. Well, did you look at this? Well, did you look at this? Well, no, I didn't look at this. I didn't, the, you don't need to look at it. So once in a, you know, they're questioning everything. Uh, they also worry excessively about a specific medical condition or the risk of developing a medical condition because it runs in the family. Uh, having so much distress about possible illnesses that it's hard for them to function. And they repeatedly check their body signs of illness, and they frequently make medical appointments for reassurance. Avoiding medical care for fear of being diagnosed with a serious uh, illness is also another factor. So they may either completely make a ton of appointments or completely avoid the doctor. And also avoiding people, places, or activities for feel, for fear that there's health risks is another thing that they do. And they're constantly talking about their health and possible illnesses. And they also are frequently searching the internet for causes of symptoms or possible illnesses. Google, Google, Google. That's what they do. They Google all day long trying to find out what's wrong with them and going to the worst possible thing that they can find. And uh, oftentimes they just ruminate and ruminate and ruminate over that. And this is a crazy maker. You know, the causes of hypochondria uh, seem no more concrete than the symptoms. Some, some people argue, given the larger uh, axis of anxiety and depression, that the condition is genetic. You know, and others feel that it is a, a child raised by a mother who always fears her kids are sick. And then the child becomes an adult, worries irrationally about health issues because that's what their mother did. And, and stress is often a catalyst, as is a personal tragedy, uh, such as the death of a loved one. So, you know, looking at this, it's uh, when they've seen it in somebody else's life, they go, oh, wow, maybe that's going to be a problem for me, especially if it's their mother or somebody that they're related to. You know, and if the disorder remains mysterious and understudied, treatments uh, do not. You know, uh, cognitive therapy can be effective. And that's what we do in, in the field of therapy and in psychology. We uh, try to decrease the hypochondriac's complaints, depressive complaints, and their trait anxiety. And by the way, I'm going to give you some ways to try to get around hypochondria's and get a hold of it and, and try to control it. Um, you know, there's another cognitive technique called exposure with the response prevention. You take an obsession and confront it directly. And let's say someone has an irrational fear that they have AIDS. That person moves toward the fear, maybe spending time around somebody who has AIDS and maybe going into a medical facility. The goal is to do something you've been avoiding. And, and sometimes when people do that, it's called in vivo in life. Uh, when they do that, they expose themselves to the very thing that they're traumatized and they find that their reaction is not nearly as, uh, as bad. And number two, they learn more about it by being there. You know, a, a lot of doctors are uh, viewing hypochondriacs as something that they that can be treated uh, via uh, antidepressant drugs. And in right cases, you know, medication can help. You know, just as anxiety can, treat, can be treated with medication, hypochondriacs can too. And, and it, it can work, and it works fantastic when it does, but the trouble is the medication doesn't always work. You know, so you, you have to consider, you know, the use of Prozac and similar medications is now under a lot of studies, and it has been since like 2008. And so some hypochondriacs are seeing to be able to get control of it with the, uh, the drugs, the medication, the antidepressants, and also combining that with therapy, which is often uh, seen as the best way to treat this.
you know, it, it's essentially health anxiety, and that's what uh, hypochondria is. You know, while the specifics are a bit more complicated, the idea is that, you know, hypochondriacs are concerned with and monitor their own health, often exhibiting uh, behavioral changes as a result of those things. And so hypochondria can be a standalone issue or a symptom of other anxieties like a panic disorder. Um, you know, so it'd be a good idea that if you're going to Google online, uh, why don't you Google an anxiety test and see if you fall into it? Why don't you Google a hypochondria uh, test and see if you fall into it? And maybe you'll see that you're not quite as objective about your own health as you think. You know, um, you know, health anxiety manifests its way in many, many ways. Uh, some read about health conditions and notice it in themselves. Some feel physical sensations and wonder if they're health-related. Some fear for health things that may not have any symptoms of. And most experience some combination of these. Despite media portrayals, most people's health anxiety is related to feeling actual physical sensations and then worrying that they may be something more. And those that read about health issues and then start to feel them are experiencing what is known as a psychosomatic symptom. That means they read about it and all of a sudden they feel they have it. And so they uh, put one and two together and they self-diagnose and then they get on Google and they start Googling their life away until they've convinced themselves that they have something and then they start going to the doctor or avoiding the doctor. It's just a pattern. You know, it's not uncommon to search for an anxiety symptom and find one of those diseases like uh, Lyme disease, heart disease, brain tumors, uh, multiple sclerosis to, to come up with. You know, people will go to those great extremes to define what is wrong with them. They have to have some hardcore thing. You know, because they notice and they're more sensitive to it, which means that they experience stronger feelings uh, about their health, um, there are ways to get a control of it. it. It is hard to control, but if you look at hypochondria through the lens of where the person genuinely feels physical sensations either because their mind creates them or because the sensations are there, but they notice them and experience them uh, worse than others, it's easy to see why hypochondria isn't something that is easy to stop. It's very hard for someone experiencing many physical symptoms and not knowing why to just forget about them. They make a person feel like they're sick. They make the person worry about being sick, and which in turn triggers anxiety, more symptoms, more worries. Because all the physical sensations are genuinely felt, they can't be easily ignored. Just like you can't tell somebody with a mosquito bite to stop itching. So, too... You cannot tell someone to stop noticing pains and discomforts, especially if there are hypochondriacs. So how do you stop it? Well, go to the doctor. In general, you don't want to be someone that goes to the doctor all the time for health reasons, but you do want to be someone that gets everything out of the way so that you don't have nagging fears. Get a complete physical with blood tests. Have your good health verified. However, note that going to the doctor won't make you stop fearing for your health. It's not uncommon to believe that the doctor missed something or that something hasn't been found yet. But going to the doctor will give you some mental ammunition to combat your fears. And also do the basics. Make sure you're eating healthy, exercising, sleeping. These basics are good health, especially, you know, try to jog, uh, any kind of cardio, and, and get magnesium into your body. You know, you want to make sure that you're reducing things that could cause excess physical sensations that trigger uh, more health anxiety. Like eating healthy, exercising, and sleeping are all 
very important to prevent some of the similar discomforts that a, a person uh, with hypochondria usually notices. So the more healthy a hypochondriac is, the less they're likely to be in tune with so much of their uh, medical issues. Also, stop Googling. You know, Googling symptoms does not work. Those that look up causes of physical issues are almost always only going to find the worst. Did you know that anxiety itself almost causes every physical symptom there is? Chances are the issue is anxiety. And even if it's not, there is no way that you're going to know through Google. Just no way to do it. You know, research, if you're going to do all the research, research anxiety, research hypochondria. You know, this, the exception to this rule is anxiety and, and hypochondria. Research them thoroughly, understand them as best as you can. The more you know about anxiety, the more you can understand how your symptoms occur and why. So that you're not surprised when you experience some strange physical sensation. And stay very busy. If you want to stop hypochondria, be busy. Part of your ability to control this type of anxiety has to do with how well you can avoid thinking about your health and still live a great life. The more you plan, the more you look forward to your life, the more you have ahead of you, the more you're going to focus on that rather than your health. You're going to try to make uh, control your health better because you want to go to that trip or you want to go to that certain place or you want to go to that party or that friend's house. There's a lot of things you may be looking forward to that you really want to do and that is a way to get out of the hypochondriac type of symptoms. Okay, we're going to help these folks that have to deal with hypochondriacs, and then we're going to go into talking about neuroticism. Thanks for listening. Come right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Encouraged and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour. Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. 
That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about how to deal with a hypochondriac in your life. You know, hypochondriacs are always fighting some ailment of their imagination, and tolerating their cycle of symptoms is exhausting and very, very frustrating. You know, though it may be all in their head, the hypochondriac in your life is in need of love and support. So you've got to deliver some some form of empathy for these folks. You know, you have to learn more about how to deal with a hypochondriac, but you know, by uh, reading and by studying and understanding what it is all about. You know, you want to hear them out. You know, hypochondriacs need to verbalize their condition, but when you hear them out, think about it as venting rather than you have to solve their problem. Because if you try to get vested in solving their problem, you're going to drive yourself absolutely nuts. So allow them to vent, and no matter how fabricated it may be, even if you've heard it all before and know it's all in their head, listen in an effort to appear interested and concerned. You also want to remain very neutral in your response and try to keep responses nonverbal. Don't appear skeptical or overly concerned, but you know, and it's a fine line, but with the hypochondriac's complaints, Remain, you want to remain supportive. You want to remain empathetic. You want to assure the hypochondriac that you understand their discomfort and pain without encouraging or discouraging their concerns with their health and appear sympathetic. And, and so once again, they are feeling this pain they're feeling is very real to them. And so uh, you have to think in terms of, of uh, they're going to go to the worst possible fear and what you want to do is encourage them to know that they have anxiety, that they have some depression, and hey, you know, this is something that's going to bother you, and this is normal. This is the way you deal with your stress and anxiety, and so, you know, there's many times you've gone to very bad conclusions and found that there really wasn't something there. Let's think about those. Let's process that. I'm not saying there's nothing there, but let's not go to the worst possible degree. You know, you want to discourage the hypochondriac from surfing the web. I can't repeat that more. You know, internet diagnosis is very dangerous. And uh, especially with delusionally ill people. And, you know, without dismissing their pain and suffering, remind them that self-diagnosis through the Internet research is very hazardous to their health. It increases anxiety 20-fold. Um, you also want to accept the fact that they're a hypochondriac. Though many of the complaints are psychosomatic, meaning they read about it and now they feel they have it. Hypochondria is a very real condition to them once again. So you want to steer the conversation with the hypochondriac. They often want to monopolize conversations with discussion of their illness. But you want to change the topic by bringing up something unrelated to physical conditions. You also want to preoccupy the hypochondriac with fun activities. I'm not saying you're their entertainment committee, but you want to have other things to divert them to. When they start complaining about their aching bones, you know, suggest to walk around the block. Uh, tackling the perceived pain through physical activity is a really good way to make them forget about it. And and you also want to remember that it's hard to distinguish between legitimate health problems and imaginary ailments. And so, you know, don't automatically assume the hypochondriac is making up their symptoms. You want to assess each episode with a very critical eye. 
And uh, some hypochondriacs are in need of therapy. And so their constant complaining is actually an attention-seeking device. Um, you want to understand that uh, hypochondria creates real distress. And uh, it is a mental disorder, just like depression or obsessive-compulsive. Uh, even if the illness is not real, the stress feels very real. And severe illnesses seems like a serious possibility to your loved one, and bland reassurances aren't going to make it go away. That's why you have to empathize. So, um, uh, listen, and even if the claims sound bizarre or made up, you want to listen. And listen means let them vent. I understand. I hear what you're saying. So, what you're saying is you're feeling this, this, and this. And, and give them, once again, reminders positive reminders of when they had uh, stomach pains that go away and uh, also you want to offer to treat symptoms without rushing uh, to a determined cause. If, if someone that uh, you love has a stomach ache and there's a hypochondriac, af- offer some stomach pills. If, if their shoulder hurts, offer to show them uh, some stretches. Uh, doing something about your loved one's symptoms, even something small, can help them stop obsessing over symptoms. You want to treat the pain or complaint without speculating about the possible diagnosis. So tr- treat the symptom, don't treat the diagnosis. Um, You also want to encourage them to do activities they enjoy. Uh, You want to accompany them to the doctor because what they delusionally hear from the doctor and what you actually hear from the doctor are going to be two different things. And uh, also, you always want to discuss uh, comorbid issues with people with hypochondria. Um, And that means that anxiety and depression may also be existing with their hypochondriasm. And also uh, support groups. If, if you go into a, a person uh, who is married to a hypochondriac uh, support group, you're going to hear how they deal with their hypochondriac and how they put up with it and what they do. And by learning from other people, what you do is you actually pick up new ways to deal with it and work your way through it. And you also want to help them build a uh, support system. And if there is a hypochondriac support system out there, which there is on the Internet, uh, that is a great way for them to start communicating because they can calm each other down. And also, um, you know, if if it's uh, not too overwhelming, go to therapy or allow them, ask them to go to therapy. And also, you always want to do fun things. All right. Now, let's talk about uh, neuroticism. You know, neurotics... um, it's a long-term tendency to be uh, in, in a negative emotional state. That's what it is. You know, people with neuroticism tend to have more depressed moods. They suffer from feelings of guilt, envy, anger, anxiety. More frequently and uh, more severely than other people, neuroticism is a state of being neurotic. So, uh the people who express neuroticism the most tend to be particularly sensitive to environmental stress and respond poorly to it. They they may perceive everyday run-of-the-mill situations as menacing and major, and trivial frustrations are problematic and may lead to despair. So a person with neuroticism is typically self-conscious and shy. They have a tendency to internalize phobias and other neurosis, such as panic disorders, aggression, negativity, depression. And, and neurosis, like a singular neurosis, refers to a mental disorder involving stra- distress, and but not hallucinations or delusions. They're not outside uh, socially acceptable norms. They're just on the edge. And so these, this individual is still in touch with reality, 
But uh, when we talk about neuroticism, it's common to read about high, medium, or low uh, anxiety scores. But the people with low scores are most, uh, more emotionally stable and manage to deal with the stress more successfully than those with the high uh, scores on tests uh, in psychology to, to determine if a person is neurotic. Now, uh, you really have to understand also uh, about neuroticism is that if you have someone in your life that is addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs, addicted to cigarettes, or they have some other crutch uh, that they have to have uh, to get by, that is a sign that the person is neurotic. That is a very strong sign if they have a very long coping skill. Uh, of, of addiction of certain kind that is their crutch to deal with their own neuroticism and so uh, a lot of people don't understand that but that is uh, you know those industries make big money because there's so many neurotic people out there you know it, it's uh, you know the, the uh, there are symptoms of neuroticism that we have to identify and uh, you know a, a general affection of the, the neuroticism was basically uh, first used by uh, William Cullen from Scotland in, in 1769. And basically he said uh, this disorder is of sense and motion, which is caused a general affection of the nervous system. And so that was a very primitive way to look at it. And it does not interfere with rational thought or ability to function. More, more recently, uh, you know, neurosis as well as a neurotic disorder or psychoneurosis refer to mental disorders which do not interfere with rational thought or the individual's ability to function, even though they do cause distress. And so psychosis, on the other hand, does interfere with the person's ability uh, to function. Psychosis mean is, it means they take a, 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 a break. They basically break from their character and do something very, very crazy. And so, uh, you know, that neurosis, that psychosis is very alarming. Uh, neurosis is just living in fear. It's just constant fear, constant uh, negativity about possibilities, constantly referring back to negative events in your life. You know, it is a anxiety is the primary uh, characteristic. Defense mechanisms or any phobias are the adjustive techniques that a person learns to cope with this underlying anxiety. In contrast to psychosis, people with a, a neurosis do not exhibit gross distortion of reality or gross distortion of personality. But in severe cases, those affected may be disabled at those with a psychosis. It may lead to a psychosis where they go delusional and they go into paranoia and all kinds of other things. You know, it's basically a nerve, a nervous disease. It's a feeling out of place in life. It is a person who doesn't feel grounded. Um, they're always looking for something uh, to happen. And a lot of the world revolves around them because the neurotic person is neurotic uh, basically uh, because they are living in a, in a world that they are very self-consumed with and they're trying to react to the world outside and they're defending themselves from it. And so they have a very uh, fragile ego, a very sensitive spirit, and so they're always looking for trouble. And so neurotics are believed to benefit uh, from therapy and they do benefit. Um, you know, to try to get objective and try to understand what neuroticism is about and try to look at their family genetics and what they've grown up under uh, and how they think about their past and how, the, uh, how they think about their future, you're able to do uh, 
cognitive work, basically thought-based work, where you're able to shape thoughts, reform thoughts, retrain thoughts, retrain the brain from the old tapes into something more productive, realistic, and in today's world. And uh, basically, they start living life in today, and they're, they're a lot more faith-based in their functioning. That means that I'm not talking about religion, but what I'm talking about is living in a sense of a positive future, hoping for the best at all times and always looking for the best advantages wherever they are. You know, of all the traits we've been looking at, uh, you know, in, in this particular, you know, the hypochondria and, and neuroticism and all the shows that we've done, you know, v- neuroticism has a very strong biological base. And the most functional traits are uh, neurotic, meaning a nervous and also extroversion. And, uh, you know, even back to uh, Hippocrates, uh, back in, uh, I think he lived in 460 to 370 BC, he basically categorized people as belonging to one of the four personality types, depending on how calm and excitable, how morose or sanguine they were, although the effects of bile, mucus, phlegm, and blood on the personality has since been disproven. You know, subsequently, uh, uh, hands. Uh, Eisnick uh, proposed two personality traits, uh, extroversion and eroticism, before these were expanded into three and eventually five. So research on animal personality has consistently provided evidence for the existence of two traits above all others, which is extroversion and neuroticism, but also other traits. And, uh, you know, neuroticism is related to mania, which is obsessive and, and jealous style of love. You know, if you're a loving and neurotic person, you know, uh, um, consciousness and agreeableness may be related to a higher cognitive functions of inhibition and excessive control. And the relationship between openness of the brain is largely unknown. So extroversion and neuroticism are more associated with older uh, regions of the brain. For instance, many imaging studies have found that neuroticism is related to the amygdala, an old primal area of the brain, which is responsible for detecting emotions, uh, particularly fear. Once again, neuroticism is all fear-based living. You know, uh, there are two independent regions of the brain, uh, which is the uh, behavioral activation system and the behavioral inhibition system. Uh, Basically, the the behavioral activation system uh, conceptualizes more of the extroversion, concerns of a personality sensitivity, uh, reward like their likelihood of approaching desirable uh, stimulus. And neuroticism concerns sensitivity to punishment, avoiding uh, aversive stimulation. So when you put those two together, you get a very uh, negative person (laughs) who is extroverted and they project that through their communication. You know, uh, also, if you're going to be with a neurotic person, calm and collected uh, is the best. You know, uh, their detached indifference in the face of danger is the best thing you can do to be with a neurotic. You know, if you're calm and collected, uh, you're going to be sexy to a neurotic because they can anchor on you. You know, it's uh, low neuroticism is found to be universally, by the way, attractive in males. Uh, Consider cool, calm and collected uh, sexiness of like a James Bond. Uh, he, he, he's very detached, once again, and uh, that's a very sexy uh, a role of a man. And many movies that have a man that is uh, cool uh, and calm and collect, 
people feel that that is a character that they like. And once again, neuroticism is a huge part of the population of the world. So when you see somebody like that, that just makes you feel better. It makes you feel calmer. And so they find people that are neurotic tend to look for somebody who is more calm and collected. Because if there was somebody that's as nervous as they are, they have a tendency to... uh, not be able to maintain their energy of living uh, very well with that person. They don't feel at home with them. They don't feel comfortable with them. And also, uh, neuroticism tends to decrease, by the way, with how older you get. And, you know, as a person's perception of their life, their experiences, and how they go through life uh, moves on, basically, neurotic patterns tend to die down. And so, uh, this is a good thing for people that have neurotic tendencies, and I would say that almost everybody has some neurotic tendencies, but once again, some have them to the extremes. And so, when you see people self-defeating or living a suicidal lifestyle like uh, cigarettes and alcohol, drugs, uh, basically, they're killing themselves over time because they don't feel that they're in place. Now, there's some neurotic patterns of, of neuroticism that we can all uh, pick up on. And so, um, you know, for a host of reasons, uh, basically, uh, neuroticism takes place. But, uh, you know, whereas traits or, or broad descriptions or, of tendencies or character adaptations are more situation, there's a sp- specific ways that people adjust to the environment. And so, uh, maladaptive, if you think about neuroticism, they have maladaptive coping strategies driven by fear or anxiety, which is can either be conscious or subconscious, and it elicits a certain kind of a situation where they're maladaptive. They don't adapt well to situations. They don't adapt well to change, and they start projecting fear, 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 fear. I don't want to change. I don't want to change. And so, you know, as we look at this, we're going to go deeper into some of these patterns, but also we're going to go into what it takes to be romantic with a neurotic and how to live with a neurotic in just a few moments. We're going to take a quick break. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. The Compassionate Life is about just that. There are so many human beings who have made a name for themselves by being humanitarians. They have become individuals who are known for being selfless, kind, and compassionate. Host Dr. Brittany King is also one of these humanitarians. Each week she shares stories of kindness that she has experienced throughout the world, both as a contributor and recipient of these acts of love and kindness. Listen every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. 
If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Okay, welcome back. We're talking about uh, neurotic uh, patterns here. You know, the importance of understanding the meaning of neurotic in terms of character adaptations is that we're all neurotic sometimes. You know, it is crucial that all of us understand our neurotic insecurities and strategies we use to cope with them. You know, we typically want to look for uh, neurotic patterns uh, in the domains of adaptation. So that would be like your typical habits uh, that you do to buy time, uh, emotions that you often elicit and also uh, uh, bring out in yourself and others. Also, relations. You know, how well you relate to other people, how close are you able to make friends or are they just homies? Is everybody a friend in a box? I do this with this person. I do this with this person. I do this, but nobody gets too close. Um, Also, your defense mechanisms. You know, people have lots of defense mechanisms. Some people, once they get emotional, just start crying and that's their defense mechanism so they don't have to go deeper into discussing things. Some people yell and scream and stomp and walk away. I mean, these are all defense mechanisms. So in therapy, you know, our job in therapy overall is to basically attack defense mechanisms. The other thing is to understand, you know, the root of all psychosis, all psychosis is the need to control something we cannot control. So, you know, people that are neurotic are very controlling and they want to control things they cannot control through the way that they are neurotic. And, uh, you know, the, the, the other thing is their beliefs. You know, their, their beliefs are what they ruminate about, how they believe. They, you know, some people will use religiosity and just correlate everything to religiosity and start to, you know, quote, quote from the Bible, quote from the Quran or whatever they believe in. And so basically they fall back on that stuff uh, as a way, as a neurotic way uh, to get around dealing with truths, d- dealing with what's happening in the moment. Um, you know, neurotic habits are automatic and they're ritualized patterns of very overt behavior that people engage in to alleviate anxiety and provide a sense of uh, familiar security, which is what it's all about. They're fear-based. They want security. The problem is that it's carried out over a long-term time and these become who the person is. You know, a, a, a classic example is an anxious drinker. You know, somebody that's stressed all day, they're riddled with achievement and relational anxieties. Alcohol becomes a short-term medicating bomb for them. You know, unfortunately, over time, it comes with significant costs like hangovers, weight gain, health problems, uh, binging, purging, uh, realis- uh, ritualistic ordering or cleaning um, nail biting, uh, trichotillomania, which is hair pulling, are all very common examples of neurotic people and their maladaptive habits. Also, uh, neurotic emotional patterns come in mm, two basic flavors. You know, there's the overregulated, meaning suppressed and not expressed, and then the underregulated, which means they're very hypersensitive or overexpressed. You know, feelings. Uh, are per se are never bad. However, feeling states can become very hyperactive or chronically 
accessible to everybody. So they just project, uh, project on everybody or they keep quiet and are always nervous and avoiding people because they're so nervous because they keep it inside themselves. You know, um, the, basically, these uh, individuals have a form of uh, maladaptive adaptiveness. Uh, they're always awkward and they've often thought of as a funny person. You know, the human... Uh, relationships and system is basically uh, guided by needs for relational value, uh, navigated with power, love, and freedom. And so neurotic relationship patterns emerge when people adopt rigid styles or if they express extreme interpersonal relations in response to fears that their relational value needs to be and won't be met. And so that's generally how they go about it. They have a very negative outcome in their mind, and they become to feel depressed and anxious about that, and they start to ruminate. You know, um, somebody that's always nice, nice or never feels angry, or a very the competitor who attacks others instead of feeling shame, the uh, emotionally distancing person who can't feel anything at all. These these are people that uh, basically have maladaptive behavior. You know, our defenses are the way we, we manage tension between conflicting goals and filter stuff out of our uh, full consciousness. So, basically, a defensive system tries to bring harmony uh, to the various other systems of, of adaptation, but sometimes does so at very significant cost. You know, two very common defenses of a person that is neurotic is repression and rationalization. Repression is when material is blocked out for self-conscious recognition, and then rationalization is when we make up reasons that we hide our true needs or our true feelings. Um, it's called cognitive dissonance, which uh, is very, uh, it's very much into the way uh, that a person focuses their attention that is neurotic. They uh, also, verbal beliefs are uh, networked into systems of justification that provide people with theories about themselves and the world. They have a philosophy of the world. And so, you know, basically cognitive psychotherapy is widespread with dealing with neuroticism because individuals realize that the roots of much of the suffering were maladaptive interpretations or beliefs based on the experience they've had in this world. So, a lot of neuroticism is easily treated when we look at the thoughts and the processes that a person that have been the roots of where a person developed their neurosis. You know, if you're going to be in a romantic relationship with a neurotic, you know, have you ever wondered why you gravitate to an inappropriate, rejecting, or unrealistic love interest? I mean, you know, do you ever seem to relive the same or similar scenario with every new romantic partner you meet, or not only in a good way, but, you know, have you ever thought about that? You know, one of the most common problems in therapy, especially marriage therapy or relationship therapy that we see is a chronic pattern of dysfunctional love relationships. The person's chosen partners typically share consistent similarities such as physical or emotional abuse, unavailability, substance abuse, instability, lying, cheating, narcissism. Each relationship eventually inevitably ends badly because these repetitive dynamics are familiar. And after a while, such destructive relationship patterns totally obvious to everyone else start to become a more apparent even to the people in therapy. And then the glaring 
uh, question becomes why would anyone in his or her right mind persist in pursuing relationships that are clearly doomed to frustration, humiliation, and failure? And once again, if you're with a uh, substance abuse, with instability, with lying, with cheating, with narcissism, unavailability, emotional or physical abuse, it's likely that you're comfortable with it, that you've lived with it. It's not that you like it. It's that you are you have adaptive skills around it, and it is a comfort to you. And that makes no logical sense uh, from a sense of self-preservation, but it makes perfectly logical sense in the sense of how a person copes with their life. You know, it's all, sometimes it's also uh, low self-esteem, poor judgment, bad karma. There's no easy explanations for this behavior of, of being with the neurotic people. You know, one important part of a self-defeating repetitive pattern puzzle sometimes has to do with the fear of intimacy or the opposite sex. Um, you know, so you have to think about that. There, there's yet another uh, neurotic phenomenon that, that is out there, and uh, Freud basically referred to this as uh, repetition compulsion. You know, repetition compulsion is an unconscious, automatic psychological defense mechanism, and basically, uh, here's how it works. You know, the repetition compulsion is a neurotic attempt to rewrite or undo one's own personal history. So, the history we try to rewrite is typically the troubled or unsatisfactory relationship with our parents, particularly, but not always, and also uh, most of the time the opposite sex parents. So when the early uh, parental relationship is fraught with frustration, disapprovement, disappointment, rejection, mm-hmm. abandonment, neglect, abuse, you know, the the child is in a very precarious spot because they're dependent on their parents. So, um, basically, from Freud's perspective, as young children, we mistakenly conclude that the problem with the parents resides with them. And so, they possess the power to rectify it by changing ourselves into someone more acceptable to their parents. And these acceptable patterns are how a person develops neuroticism. And that's basically how Freud looked at it. You know, um, later on during, uh, like, adolescence and adulthood… Uh, a childhood scenario can be unconsciously uh, recreated. You know, it is a painful and mystifying yet incredibly wondrous and astonishing thing to to see a person relive their childhood through their uh, marital relationship. You know, the the hope is that, you know, we can get through childhood with some integrity. And it, it is in itself a very potent defense mechanism, and perhaps the most difficult to let go is something that you develop to deal with your childhood because you've had it forever, and it's ingrained in who you are. So the reality is is that the problem typically lies not with the child but with the parent or parents who, because of their own issues or situational limitations, were unable or unwilling to provide love, structure, and discipline, support, security, acceptance that all children need and require to thrive. And so, in other words, we could say that the parents are more or less physically or emotionally unavailable to their children in ways most needed by the children. And so, uh, basically, cognitive and intellectual recognition is very important, but also um, experiential learning and and developing the person's own individuality and their own coping skills without the need of using what they used in childhood is the way you want to break it down and try to get through it. Now, how to live with a neurotic? You know, a person who's described as neurotic will tend to be in a depressed mood, 
They tend to cope poorly with the daily stresses of life. So these people may also suffer from, uh, you know, strong feelings of guilt, anxiety, anger. You know, in the uh, psychological world, neurosis is no longer used. It is considered to be an, uh, an, ob- an obsolete term. However, you know, the psychological implication of the term is still used and points to mental disorders such as anxiety, depression, uh, panic disorder obsessive uh, compulsive disorder, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and a whole lot more. Although living with a neurotic person can be very challenging and stressful, you can learn what to expect, and which will help you, uh, you know, ride through the relationship a little smoother. And then the first thing you want to do is notice what the neurotic symptoms look like. You know, the symptoms of neurosis vary depending on the specific neurotic disorder a person has. One commonly... Uh, One commonality is that people with neurotic tendencies are firmly connected to reality. They do not experience hallucinations or delusions. However, you may notice some of the following. They have uh, persistent anxiety. They have persistent sadness or depression. They have uh, anger, irritability when faced with stressful situations. They have a very low sense of self-worth. They have a phobic avoidance of situations. They have compulsive behaviors. They're perfectionists. Their negative or cynical attitude, uh, repetitively negative or disturbing or unpleasant thoughts, and they're very easily annoyed. So, noticing the symptoms is number one. Understand what drives these tendencies is huge. You know, many people with neurotic tendencies never learned how to to comfort, calm, reassure, or feel good about themselves. Often, uh, the parents only gave comfort, reassurance, and praise if certain expectations were met. So if the person did not meet the parents' uh, standards, these expressions of love were withheld. And this can cause a lifetime of anxiety, fear, and guilt. You know, the, the, the fear of conditional love may continue into adulthood. And the neurotic person will become dependent on others who provide this sense of self-worth, seek reassurance from others, but still fear that they must meet certain expectations or the people will not give them comfort or reassurance. So the neurotic person may also feel a deep rage and anger over the way that they've been treated, but at the same time afraid to express the anger for the fear of losing this person as a source of comfort. So you want to get into their story and you want to empathize with them. You want to also realize the behavior stems from fear. You know, uh, when fear enters, faith leaves. When faith enters, fear leaves. Faith is what life is about. I'm not talking religion. Faith is a leap of faith. That's what life is about. And it's huge. You know, you want to recognize how a neurotic person reacts to stress if you live with somebody with that. You also want to give them time to open up and and, uh, be patient with them. Be tolerant. Be empathetic with them. Have good conversations with them. Ask them a lot of process questions. Process questions begin with, you know, what drove you to do this or how did you decide that this is happening You know, let them process their feelings and what they've done. Uh, Encourage them to seek treatment and know how the person can get diagnosed. Also, uh, you want to disengage from confrontation with somebody that's that's cycling up. You want to back away. You want to give them some space. So taking a time out and calling a time back is the best thing. And how long do you take a time out? Uh, One year for one one. one minute for every year of your life is a good way to look at that. And you also want to avoid being too critical. If you're a critical person, you're going to make a neurotic person more neurotic. And uh, also, you want to help them feel loved and not guilty and avoid encouraging their negative behavior. All right, that's our show. Our next show is about gender identity.
I want to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback, drgbmft at sbcglobal.net or Twitter at drgbmft. Now, remember, you know who's in charge when you thank your two-year-old for poo-pooing in the potty. Also, it really hurts when you call someone a hypochondriac. That's our show. Thanks for listening. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. We'll be right back.